So this morning, um, I don't usually tell you what I title the messages, but this one I titled it the un I'm sorry, the godly troublemaker. The godly troublemaker. Not ungodly, but the godly troublemaker. And I realize for some of us when we hear this, we think, well, this is kind of an oxymoron, right? I also claim on words here that I mean could godly really be a troublemaker. And yes, we're talking about godly troublemakers. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. Uh, I think of Paul in Acts. We see the trouble that he caused. Listen to this. I just made a list. In Philippi, a group of people became the Christ in salvation, and they changed a lot of things. In Athens, a lot of people trusted in Christ, but Paul was mocked by the leading thinkers of the day. In Corinth, Paul was reviled, and he was attacked. In Thessalonica, in Antioch, and Poseidon, in Berea, some turned to Christ, but literally a mob ran him out of town. In Ephesus, he spent a couple of years there. He first started in the synagogue, but they started slandering Christianity, so he left. And so he went to more among the Gentiles. And then eventually a riot, a literal riot, ran him out of town. He was arrested at Jerusalem. He also was ran out of town at Damascus, at Iconium, and he was stoned at Lystra. This is Paul, uh, the godly troublemaker. He did all these things. They did, there wasn't, can you imagine a riot going on here at Sully? Just getting, we're just getting thrown out of town. And this morning, we're going to look at another godly troublemaker. That's John the Baptist. If he was here today, I can imagine that he'd be labeled as a bigot. He'd probably be rebuked for hate speech. He'd probably, honestly, he'd probably be disliked by many Christians for being too political or too divisive. One pastor, he said this. I just heard this recently. He says, we love our dead heroes and we love our living conformists. We love our dead heroes because they're dead and they're safe in history. But if they were alive today, we'd probably hate them with everyone else because they're divisive. They're, they're, they cause trouble. Martin Luther, who was incredible, Incredible in church history. He was a troublemaker. He was a massive troublemaker. Incredibly abrasive. We would definitely call him abrasive today. Athanasians. We would probably join in the crowd as they mocked him as he was banished for the fourth time from his town. We'd probably chastise Paul for being too abrasive. We'd probably criticize his, his ministry strategy as he was ran out so many towns and so many cities. We'd probably shame Charles Spurgeon for being insensitive and stubborn. And what I'm showing here is just that there's godly troublemakers. They cause trouble. And this morning, as I said, we're going to look at one godly troublemaker in history and quite the man, John the Baptist, the godly troublemaker who was the forerunner before the Messiah. And so we're going to break in four parts. We're in Luke chapter 3. If you do not have your Bible, there's one right in front of your pew. It will be in page 806. So Luke chapter 3, and there's four things we'll consider. Number one is this godly troublemaker prepares the way for the Lord. Number two, we'll consider the message of the godly troublemaker. Three, we'll focus, what's, what is the focus of the godly troublemaker? We'll see that. And number four, we'll just look at the godly troublemaker plainly making trouble in the last part. So Luke chapter 3, if you have that with me, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20. 
So the first point, Luke chapter 3, is the godly troublemaker prepares the way of the Lord. Verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Peturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Billion. Say those all fast. During the high priesthood of Annas, this is probably why Aaron didn't want to get to reading today. Sorry, Aaron. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. It can be very easy to skip over that part. Like, okay, yep, yep, sounds good. But I want to point out two things here. Number one, and we, we saw this throughout Luke so far, is that our faith, our faith in Jesus Christ is not wishful thinking. It is not some some nice words or thoughts we have. It is rooted in history. It is rooted in fact. Luke roots us like this happened at this time. If we look through these people, like Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, it's a new Caesar. Last time we saw Caesar, I think it was Caesar Augustus when Jesus was born. Different Caesar now. Pontius Pilate, we know him pretty well. Herod, we hear about him frequently. Philip and Lysanias, other rulers. Interesting, the high priest of Antichrist, I'm just going through this here, does that sound familiar? They were the ones that were high priests when they crucified Jesus. They were the ones that were there. But Luke dates this. So this is 28 or 29 AD. This is roughly the time. 28, 29 AD. And John is back on the scene. We've seen Luke in the beginning. Or he, he's kind of intertwining Jesus and John. The announcement of John's birth. Then the announcement of Jesus' birth. And then this uh, going on with Elizabeth, going on with Mary. Then they come together and they meet each other. Uh, Zechariah prophesies about uh, um, about John. And then Mary prophesies about Jesus. And they're just intertwined, right? They keep on going back and back and forth. Now John is back on the scene. And the word comes to him. The word is active. And acts. Luke's second volume. We see it multiple times. It says the word of God spread and multiplied. We'll see that phrase in Acts a lot if you read through it. The word of God spread and multiplied. And look at this. This is I think this Luke does this on purpose. The word of God did not come to Tiberius Caesar, who reigned in the supposedly eternal city of Rome. The word of God did not come to Pontius Pilate, who's governor. The word of God did not come to Herod, ruling Galilee, or Philip, or Lysanias. The word of God did not even come to the religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas, but it came to John, a lonely child born of an obscure elderly couple. And the word of God did not come to rulers and palaces, rather it came to John in the wilderness. And so it comes. And it affects John. And the word comes to us this morning as we read it. So here we go, verse 3. So that's the setup here. We hear about John. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We'll come back to that. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so we get a glimpse of the, the ministry of John the Baptist. He proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see these three parts, and we're going to hit these things here really briefly because they're important. We're trying to understand John the Baptist. So he preaches a baptism, and this is not unheard of. 
in uh, first century Judaism. It's not like Jesus instituted baptism and was never heard of before. There was baptisms going on, but this baptism that John preached would have been extremely offensive to the Jewish leaders at that time. Why? In Judaism, there were ceremonial washings that they would do, but they would not do baptisms. There was baptisms, however, for Gentiles, non-Jews, who converted to Judaism. They'll baptize them, but not Jews, because they're just automatically in. Then you got John the Baptist saying, yep, you need to be baptized as well. You need to be baptized like the dogs, as the Jews referred to the, the Gentiles. You also need to be baptized. So John comes. And it is important to recognize that John's baptism that we see here is not the same as our baptism that we think of. The new covenant baptism, the baptism in Christ, is not the same. In fact, in Acts 19, Luke's second volume, we see that some, some people who were baptized at the John's baptism were commanded to be baptized again into Jesus. And so they're different. In fact, as we go through this, the baptism in Jesus is the fulfillment of what the baptism of John looked forward to or expected. The same way that John's ministry is all about the forerunner, he's continuing to point back, hey, he's coming, be ready. The Messiah is coming, God's salvation is coming, judgment is coming, he's coming. He continued to point back, and then there's Jesus. Same with the baptism. The baptism pointed to Christ. And so we, we see that here. And it says it's a baptism of repentance. The focus isn't so much on the baptism as it is the message of repentance. And repentance is a massive theme in John's ministry, in Jesus' ministry, in all the ministries of the apostles, the New Testament books. Repentance is a huge theme. In fact, one pastor says that a gospel devoid of a call to repentance is unheard of and it's foreign to the New Testament. Without repentance, we are missing part of the gospel. So what is repentance? That's an obvious okay, What does that mean? First, if I can just briefly go through this, it comes from a sense of responsibility before a sovereign and holy God. It comes from the sense of sovereign, uh, a sense of responsibility before a sovereign holy God, and it results in a change, a, reor- a reorientation from sin to God. One um, pastor in history said that without hatred of sin and remorse for transgressions, no man will taste the grace of God. And he kind of talks about what repentance is. It comes from this this hatred of sin. We turn from sin to God. Sometimes repentance is presented as it's just another work. It's just something you have to do. And that's far from the truth. It's not some pre-salvation or pre-faith work. There are two sides of the same coin. Um, Listen to this. John Murray, he insisted this. The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith. And the repentance that's unto life is a believing repentance. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with saving faith. The individual who trusts, this is a different guy, Ferguson, the individual who trusts in Christ simultaneously turns away from sin. In believing, he repents, and repenting, believes. They're, sim- they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, we're probably familiar to like a saying that we come, you come to Christ empty-handed, right? Have you heard that? We come with nothing. We come empty-handed. We come in faith looking for God to give us. The thing is, we come 
empty-handed. We let go of the sin and come empty-handed. Because we get this picture of turning from sin, repenting, and trusting for faith. So they're two sides of the same coin. And so that's, that's the call for John, a baptism of repentance. Changing how you see God, how you approach God, repenting from your sin. And it says, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And I want to tie this in here. Those who were baptized by John were not automatically forgiven of their sins. Rather, it was a baptism that pointed to the knowledge of salvation in the Messiah. In fact, Zechariah prophesied about this with John. Chapter 1, if you remember, he says this. For you will go, talk about the son John, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. So this baptism of John pointed, it pointed to Jesus. The Messiah is coming. Repent now. Prepare yourself. He is coming. So John... His ministry, we kind of encapsulate here, is kind of an offensive ministry, especially to the Jewish leaders. You're not okay. You need to repent. The Messiah is coming. And then we see that John's ministry is tied in the Old Testament. And Luke brings up Isaiah. Now, here's a few points. I just want to hit a few points here, very quick, main points of this passage. So we see a forerunner comes to prepare the way of the Lord. That's John the Baptist. We see that the way that's how it's, the way is prepared is that geographic obstacles are leveled. It can't be undone. There's power coming. There's sovereign power coming. Things will be leveled down. This preparation, how does it come? Repentance. Preparing your heart. This humble submission. Preparation means a humble submission before God. A message that goes against every prideful bone and muscle in our bodies, right? Humble submission. And we're believers. Imagine this message to unbelievers. Repent. Humbly submit. Because the Lord is coming. Prepare the way. So that's the first part. The godly troublemaker comes, preparing the way of the Lord, calling people to repentance and humble submission. Here's number two. Is the message of the godly troublemaker. We got a little glimpse when it talked about he proclaimed the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But then we get a little more here in verse 7. Look at this. He said, therefore, just look at how he starts this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that come out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Have you ever heard of the phrase, uh, turn or burn? Uh, I know I've used that. I've heard it in a joking manner, like like how not to evangelize, how not to preach. Like, hey, turn or burn, huh? Right? You've probably heard it in that context, or at least that's how I've heard it. It seems like that was exactly John's message, is repent because judgment is coming. Verse 7 said, therefore, to the crowds, these crowds are gathering around John. This guy is a weird guy. This is kind of what is going on. So they're gathering. Okay, what's going on with this guy? Church advisors today would probably tell John at this point, hey, man, 
you've got a lot of people coming to your church. Uh, like, hey, make sure you contextualize your message. Make sure uh, be very loving and be very attractive. And what does John do right from the beginning? He insults them right from the beginning. He calls them a name. You brood of vipers. And I'm sure back then, that was the same today where being called a snake is not a good thing, right? He calls you brood of vipers. And then he says, who warned you from the wrath to come? And you get this picture here of like a brush fire and a snake running from it. I am certain that you, like me, have probably had an issue with rats or woodchuck, and there's a hole in your yard. So you either pour gas down it or a hose, right? You light on fire, and you sit there with a gun, wait for it. I'm certain I'm not the only one. We get this picture here of this, where, hey, you brood of vipers, who warned you the wrath to come? The fire's coming, and you're, you're running away. That's what we get this picture going on here. This is John the Baptist. This is what his message was. Who warned you? God's salvation is coming. We've seen that, but with that comes wrath. And he says his command is bearing fruits, keeping with repentance. So repentance, as we saw, it's it's a reorientation from sin to God, a hatred of sin, a change in your thinking, and it inevitably manifests in actions. It will inevitably manifest in actions. We see that in James 2, right? Uh, faith, without, uh, faith without works is dead. Is he saying that we're saved by works? Nope. We're saved by faith. That works. A faith that doesn't work isn't really faith at all. That's his whole point. And so we see John the Baptist saying, hey, bear fruits keeping with repentance because true repentance will bear fruit inevitably. Maybe not all at once, but it will. And so he says this, bearing fruits. And then John turns to a common object that the people of the time put their faith in, put their hope in instead of Christ. And what was that? John says, do not begin to say, we have Abraham as our father. Do not begin to say that. So the Jews at that time, they, they misunderstood the Old Testament and thought that just because they were the physical descendants of Abraham, that they're automatically in, that they're, that they're right with God just because they're physical descendants of Abraham. In our study of Galatians, we saw that that's not true, right? We saw that the, the children of Abraham were those who are of faith. We saw that in Galatians chapter 3, I believe. So John says, hey, do not ignore, do not ignore your desperate need to repent. Do not snuff out the voice that's calling you for repentance. And don't say that, hey, I have hope in my granddaddy. That's why I, my hope is with him. My trust is in him. John's saying, nope, not at all. And we can heed that, that, that call for us today as well, that we, we are not right with God just because who our parents are. We're not right with God just because we've come to church our whole life. We're not right with God for any of these reasons is only in the coming Messiah at John's viewpoint in us, the Messiah that has come and the Messiah who will return is only in him. And then John just kind of adds salt to the wound. He says, God is able from stones to raise up children of Abraham. This guy's just laying it on. Hey, do not, don't say you're children of Abraham and then you're right with God because God can even raise up children of Abraham from stones. He's kind of showing that your, your hope in this alone it is worthless, it's shallow, it's unhelpful. And so his call is to repent, to return from those things. And then he gets to the judgment part. He says that even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Uh, Casey gets on, she's not in here good. She gets on my case, because if we have a tree in our yard or something that we can cut down, I go for the axe rather than the chainsaw. Because it just... 
you just feel like a man. You know what I'm saying? Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. You just feel like a man. You love the work. It's a great workout. Casey thinks I'm fat, so I had to work out. And so I would, I'm just, it was just a joke. I'm sorry. Don't worry. She doesn't listen to these. She's, they were here. No, I'm just kidding. So I go for the X. But whatever, we you know, if you get a chance or X out, it never ends good for the tree, right? It never goes well for the tree. And so we get a picture that John says, turn, turn from this, repent, repent. He says, for the axe is already, even now, laid at the root of the trees. This is judgment language. It's already there, even now. It probably reminds you a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, right? The, the trees that are cut down and thrown in the fire. You get this picture, it sounds similar. And the, the tree, the axe, isn't aimed at all the trees. It's only aimed at the unfruitful, the fruitless, unrepentant trees. That's the ones that are being cut down. So judgment's coming. And what is this final judgment? He's talking about when we die, when we stand before God, there will be judgment. But it is near, John says, because how we respond to the message of John that points to the Messiah, how we respond to that, will precisely determine if and how God's judgment, his ash will come in the end. And then we see the response, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? A very appropriate response, right? You're hearing this. Okay, what should we do then, John? He says, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors who were hated at that time also came to be baptized and said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers, they were also hated at that time, asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So they're asking, what shall we do? We hear this. And we do not want to be one of those trees that are cut down and thrown in the fire. What shall we do? They understood that this should affect their lives. As, as John said, bear fruit, keeping with repentance. And so they're asking, what shall we do? And he answers them, specifically within their context, their, their career, their place in life. And it's interesting that he, he, he points to meeting the needs of others. Love for God affects how we love others. To the one of the two tunics, he says, give the one to the one that, that needs it. In this tunic, um, it was one that was worn underneath, it was close to the skin. It wasn't necessary, but it was still, it was still worn a lot. So it's like giving an extra item to someone who is in need. Then he goes to the tax collectors. And we, I think we're all pretty familiar, if not. Um, the tax collectors were not like people at that time. How they did it in the back day, very quick, there was levels of tax collectors. Like there was a head tax collector who employed other tax collectors who went out in different regions. And each level of tax collectors had a right to add on to the tax a fee to pay for their expenses. And they were the ones that decided it. So you can imagine that they extorted money like crazy. They jacked up the, the tax that took a lot of money. And so they were not liked. And so Jesus says, basically, be fair in your work. Have integrity in your work. Then the soldiers came, and John gave very similar advice. Uh, let me just do a side note here. Uh, business ethics, we hear that a lot, right? I know a lot of the other jobs I've worked, you go to different conferences, different trainings, and they talk about 
um, doing business ethically, whatever situation you're in. And it always interested me how they try to lay that out in a sense of why? Why should I be ethical? I mean, sure, uh, in our worldview, biblical worldview, we have every reason to be ethical. God commands us to uh, to be fair, to have integrity, to love others. He commands us to. In an unbeliever worldview, why? Maybe I should be ethical just so I don't get fired or whatnot. But if I can be unethical and get more money without being caught, why? So there's a sign now. It's only the Christian worldview that gives us a reason why we should be ethical. Moving on. So we see here with John, this message. He preaches and warns about a judgment that's coming. He says to respond with concrete repentance. He begins with calling his listeners a name. He rebukes them for what their hope is currently in. And then he tells them what to do with their money and what they should do with their jobs. And then he points out their sins. That's the message. Part number three is the focus. So we looked at uh, the Godly Traveler. He prepares the way for the Lord. Then we looked at the message of him. And now we're looking at the focus, which is very similar. Verse 15. As the people were in expectation, right? Who is this guy? What is going on? And all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing, winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So there's expectation. They were all expectation. They probably all knew the Old Testament and the things that John spoke about refer to the day of the Lord. This catastrophic judgment is coming and John is speaking what seems to be very similar to their expectation. They think, is he the Messiah? John clearly denies this. Very clearly, he says, no. Rather, he points to he who is coming. He's mightier than John. Jesus is in a whole different class than John. We see it throughout chapter 1 and 2, is that Jesus is always presented as better than John. They're intertwined, but Jesus is always better than John. John always points back. He says, I'm not worthy to unstrap or untie the strap of the sandals. So as you might be familiar, in those days, everyone walked either barefoot or with sandals on. And then it was the job of the slave to take off the sandals of the master. But it was such a degrading act that Hebrew slaves, Jewish slaves, would not do that. Yet John is saying, I am not worthy to even take that slave role to the one who's coming, this Messiah who is coming. John says, hey, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Again, we see a difference in the baptisms, but we see that this one who is coming, he will divide. He'll have one baptism, but he'll divide people with the Holy Spirit and fire. Those who receive the baptism and believe, and then those who reject it. And he gives us this picture of this winnowing fork in his hand, clearing the threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn, and burning the chaff. And you may be familiar with that, but let me kind of describe that. So they've got the, the bundle of all the grain there. And so what they would do, they would have a almost like a shovel, a winnowing fork, and they would throw they did it, and throw it up, and then the wind, or they would have a, a winnowing fan going, and then that would blow away 
the chaff that's unusable, but then the, the heavier grain that they would actually use would fall to the ground. So they'd constantly be throwing up, right? Uh, letting the, the wind take care of the bad chaff that's unusable that they didn't use. And there's that picture that he's using there. Is that just like we do that, talking to the people there, that's what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to divide the chaff that's just going to be blown away and burnt, and then the, the useful grain that falls back to the floor. And then it ends. John continued uh, exhorting them and preaching the good news. Literally evangelizing, which we saw the angels already did earlier. We saw the shepherds did this, and now John the Baptist. And if you're like me, I read that, and I was like, okay, where was the good news in that? All I heard was judgment, everything like that. But the good news was the one is coming. Salvation is coming. The Messiah is coming right behind me. This baptism is pointing to him. So John, he talks of judgment. He talks about the lordship and the exclusivity of Christ, the Messiah who's coming. There's salvation and no one else. You can escape judgment and no one else except the one who's coming behind me. Part number four, we're ending this here. The godly troublemaker, he makes trouble. Verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, being John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John the Baptist, he reproved and rebuked Herod. So Herod and Herodias, um, his brother's wife, what happened was, they were in marriages, and then they divorced their husband and wife to marry each other. Not only that, Herod is Herodias, I don't know say the name, is her uncle, that's his niece. And so John is saying that is against God's law and God's command. It's clear in Leviticus twice. He says, you shouldn't be doing that. That's, that's against God's law. And then he goes against all the evil things Herod has done. And the grammar indicates that this was not a one and done. This was continual. He continually reproved. He continually rebuked Herod. So don't, let's not blow by this fast. Because right? it can be very easy just to read through this. John rebuked a secular political leader for disobeying God's commands. God, John rebuked a secular political leader for disobeying God's commands. John held the secular leader to God's law and his commands. Herod was not, not a believer, not close, not even close to a believer. Yet John upheld God's commands and law as the standard of morality and the standard to which Herod is held to. And this goes right in line with the ministries of the Old Testament prophets because they continued, continually challenged the immoral activity of the rulers of that time in Israel and Judah and all the surrounding uh, countries as well. John didn't separate politics and his faith. And we shouldn't either. If our political views do not line with God's word, we need to repent. And this clearly caused a lot of trouble. John the Baptist was in prison, and as we read later, he's executed. So John didn't have a very successful ministry by many worldly standards. He went too political. He ended up limiting his leadership and influence by being in prison, which eventually led to the end of his career by execution. And we can say the same about Paul. He didn't have a very successful ministry. 
In 2 Timothy, which is most likely the very last letter he wrote before he was executed, he describes his ministry like this. In chapter 1 he says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. All the places he went, people have turned away from me. At the very end, he reminds Timothy, who he writes to, about persecution he's endured. He says to come to him because Demas, he's in love with the present world. He has deserted me. He's gone away. He says that outside of the conversation, he did great, did great harm. In verse 16 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he says, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. Paul, by our standards today, are as in the, the American Christian church, would probably say he was not very successful because at the end, everyone deserted him. He was left alone. The same could probably be said to Jesus, that he was not very successful. He spent three years of ministry before his resurrection. He upset a lot of people. He was very divisive. He spoke very hard things. In fact, many of his followers had no idea what he was talking about until after the resurrection. One of his followers wanted him dead. And eventually he was killed. Like John the Baptist, we can speak about the other apostles, that they caused a lot of trouble and they paid for it. They were all executed except for John, who was banished to an island. Uh, we get this tradition that's been held down. Peter was crucified. Andrew crucified. James executed. We read that in James 12, the only apostle we read in the Bible uh, who was executed. Uh, Philip stoned Nathaniel, who was Bartholomew. He was either drowned to death by stone tied to him from the lake, or he was crucified. Matthew was burned at a stake. Thomas was killed by a spear. The other James was stoned. Simon was uh, sawed in two. Judas, who was not a Iscariot, was clubbed to death. And then Paul, we read, was uh, is beheaded. And we see that so many in church history. And we see that today, Nigeria. We read our brothers and sisters in Christ were being killed in Nigeria. And not even thinking about North Korea, not thinking about Iran and these other areas. And so if we are not hated, if we are not hated by the world or opposed to any degree for living righteously, then maybe we're not following Christ like we should be. And maybe we have a wrong understanding of what it means to follow Christ. So let me bring this uh, toward end here. You've got John the Baptist, this troublemaker. He proclaimed repentance. People did not like that. I, I, my... Matrasov does not like hearing that either. He pointed to the exclusiveness of Jesus. There's only salvation in the one who's coming behind him. He warned judgment if you reject Christ. He exposed false teaching and wrong thinking. He destroyed the idols people have trusted in. He challenged people's sin and told them what to do with their money. And he rebuked secular authorities. A lot of Christians today in our country will say he was asking for it, right? He was way too political. He was way too abrasive and direct. But as we saw in the New Testament, in church history, we have hundreds of years. The history that we come out of, that we are a part of, is full of these godly troublemakers who held to the truth, who took on the resistance of the opposition and paid the price, and they kept them moving forward. In light of all this, may we not, here at SBC, may we not sit thinking that not rocking the boat is a form of godliness. May we not mistake a lack of trouble and conflict as a sign of doing things right. May we not reduce faithfulness to simply keeping people happy and not complaining. 
May we never stop proclaiming the often offensive truth in exchange for appealing words that tickle the ears. We may, may we never acquiesce to the world's standards of success in terms of numbers and money and forget the charge to be faithful to God and His Word. May we never lose sight of the reality of eternity. May we never get lost in the pursuits of the world. May we live forever under the Lordship of our Master Jesus who will return to judge the living and the dead. And may we never, may God have mercy here at Soli that we may never be ashamed of the gospel, which is the is the power of God unto salvation, and may we never substitute it for a damning, therapeutic, self-help, prosperity gospel. John the Baptist, he was a unique, godly troublemaker as he was the forerunner for the Messiah. And God calls us to a similar role. We also already saw that with Paul, every city he went to, there was either a revival or a riot. There was never a, okay, he's a cool guy. Let's, let's, let's just let him live here. It was either a riot or a revival. There was never, never a message preached that was like, hey, try Jesus for 30 days. If you don't like him, bring him back. No questions, no hassle, we'll pay you back. There was never a message like that. There was a message of judgment is coming. We have sinned. Turn to Christ. He is Lord of all. Repent. Now for today is the day of salvation. So I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying to seek out unnecessary, unnecessary trouble, but I'm saying not to avoid godly trouble. God promises, Jesus does, Paul does. You will have some kind of opposition, some degree of persecution if you live a godly life. You will. It's promised to us in Scripture. We're promised to suffer. It's promised to us. So if we haven't had any degree of opposition at all from anyone any unbelievers, that maybe we are not living as righteous life as we think. Maybe we are not proclaiming the, the truth as much as we think. Maybe we're not holding to it as much as we think. So don't avoid godly trouble because we're called to this. This is what God uses. We see that with Paul. We see that through church history. I'm going to end it with this. We're called to be godly troublemakers, but we will never, ever do enough. But praise God, because Jesus Christ has done enough for us. He has done enough. And that's exactly what we're going to celebrate um, as we take partake the Lord's Supper together.